You may be seated, church. It's good to see you. You know, today is Oscar Sunday. Did you know that? You may have caught some of our promotions about this. This is something that we do every year on a Sunday, on an Oscar Sunday. I think the Oscars are tonight, 5 o'clock Pacific time. Who here is going to watch the Oscars? You can be honest. I probably, I probably will not watch the Oscars. This is my Oscars right here, right now. We're going to be looking at the film Jojo Rabbit. Who here has seen Jojo Rabbit? A few people. I know there was a small group, a special small group, my favorite small group now, that went and saw Jojo Rabbit. Um, you know, who here saw another Oscar-nominated film? Who saw um, Parasite? Well, I saw Parasite. Parasite was good, but I can't preach on Parasite, right? I can't do that. Not here. Uh, who saw, um, was it 1917? Ben did. Yeah. Ben said it was a masterpiece. I remember that. He said that on social. He said, it's a masterpiece. Who here saw, uh, what's the other one? Oh, yeah, The Irishman. Who, who here had the patience to sit through that film? God bless you. Wow. Uh, this morning, I want to also read from God's Word. I want to read out of 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. We're going to be reading about love. And then we're going to kind of bring it back into the film, Jojo Rabbit. But we're going to read about love, and then we're going to talk a little bit about love. Man, love means everything and nothing all at once, right? In our culture, um, I can say that, that I love chocolate chip mint ice cream, and I can also turn around and say I love my mama. I love my mom. I can say I love, I love dark chocolate, like 75%, you know, whatever. Is that bittersweet chocolate? I don't even know. But the, the kind with the sea salt mixed in, I, lo I love chocolate. I love that kind of chocolate. But then I can say sincerely that I love my wife. But the two are not the same, right? We use the word love to, to really describe each and every pleasure, each and every preference we have. It's, it's sort of a catch-all category, what we love. Well, this morning, we want to look at the definition of love that comes to us from Scripture. We're going to read 1 John chapter 4 this morning. Let's read it, starting in verse 16. And so we know and rely on the love of God I'll try that again. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. You know, there are few passages in Christian scripture like this one. Uh, this passage speaks so directly to the definition of love. 
that it's actually a commentary on a very well-known verse in John's gospel. Same author. You have the gospel of John, then you have this epistle, this letter, 1 John. This is really John elaborating on that well-known verse, John 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall have shall not perish but have eternal life. So this is really John elaborating on that. This is kind of like John's commentary on the verse that he penned, that he wrote in his gospel. Um, the capacity to love is such an essential, is, is such a, a fundamental, essential part of who we are. And that's what comes across in this passage. There's a philosopher out of Calvin University. His name is Jamie Smith. He's written now a few books on the subject of love. And his main thrust, his main point is that at bottom, as human beings, we're not firstly thinking beings or, or beings, people that believe things, but we are fundamentally lovers. We are all those who love something. It's not a question of whether we love. It's rather a question of what we love. He has a passage, a quote that we want to look at. He says this, what distinguishes us as individuals, but also as peoples, is not whether we love, but what we love. At the heart of our being is a kind of love pump that can never be turned off, not even by sin or the fall. Rather, the effect of sin on our love pump is to knock it off kilter, misdirecting it and getting it aimed at the wrong things. Our love can be aimed at different ends or, or pointed in different directions. And these differences are what define us as individuals and communities. So now turning our attention to the film Jojo Rabbit, one of the first things we realize about this film is how misdirected this love pump, this innate kind of primal desire to love, to love something or someone, we see just how misdirected this love pump can get. Here's a little synopsis of the film. Jojo Rabbit is a World War II satire. Everybody know what a satire is? It's a genre in, un, unto itself. It's really like a comedy, but it uses sort of slight and, and subtle humor to poke fun at or caricature either a time period or a certain person. So this movie is a satire that follows a 10-year-old Nazi boy named Jojo whose worldview is really turned upside down when he discovers his single mother, Rosie, is hiding a young Jewish boy in their attic. Jew You've seen the movie. <laughs> Jewish girl. My script said girl. I said boy. I don't know why that. Jewish girl. Thank you very much. Her name is Elsa, right? Elsa Kor. You're on point this morning. It's good. Keeping me honest. So mom, Rosie, is hiding this Jewish girl in their attic. And, and aided only by his idiotic imaginary friend, um, Adolf Hitler, Jojo must confront his misdirected love. He must confront the ways in which his love is just going sideways. It's no good. And he must do this if he is to find perfect love 
amidst a world of fear. So we're going to watch a, a trailer here with a bit of commentary from the director, and then we'll get back into it. Here's the clip. His master jumped home. Prepare to leave the house. Is it dangerous? Extremely. As an artist, you always want to challenge yourself more and more, and I always feel that if I don't feel nervous going into a film, then it's not really worth it for me. From there, go. That's where we get more creative and uh, come up with more inventive ways of dealing with parts of the story, and it becomes more of my style of film. I wanted to tell a story set in World War II, which dealt with all of the things we're used to, but from children's perspective and with an imaginary adult. What's wrong with you, man? I felt like if I was going to tackle this subject, I've got to make sure that it doesn't feel like every other World War II film. Meeting this girl shakes Jojo's worldview. You're not a Nazi. You're a ten-year-old kid who likes dressing up in a funny uniform and wants to be part of a club. I wanted to, well, I had to really dance a bit between this dramatic and comedic tone. What is she burning? What are you burning? What are you burning? I'm not saying that, you know, I'm going to be able to change every single person with this film. But I do feel like it's an important film for our time right now because I think we can never stop dealing with what happened in World War II. Some people might say, yeah, there was so many years ago. It's not that many years ago. I know he's in there somewhere. A little boy who loves to play and experiment and shop your geek. And yeah, that's all you have. Hope. You know, I feel like in quite good company with films like The Great Dictator, but Life's Beautiful, where it's poking fun at these people, but also trying to explain how serious this stuff is. I meant we need dogs, not actual German shepherds. Get them out of here! I just had to make sure that I wasn't letting that get the better of the story and water down the main message, which is we need to be more tolerant and spread more love and less hate. So like, like many boys who, who grew up during that despicable time in, uh, in Nazi Germany, Jojo Betzler, the main character, this 10-year-old boy, he found great solace and, and strength in nationalist ideology. And in the, the propaganda and the ideology of the Fuhrer, right, and, and the fatherland of Germany. And Jojo's own father is away fighting on the Eastern Front, and he's searching Jojo for a father's love. There's an absence of a father in his life. And much of the propaganda of that time espoused Adolf Hitler as the father of, of all Germans. And one state song that, that Hitler youth would, would actually sing to the fatherland, to Germany, is this song here. It goes, I know you well and love you as I do my father and mother. I will always be obedient to you as I am to my father and mother. And when I am bigger, I will help you as my father and mother do. And you will be proud of me as my father and mother are. Wow. That, that's some propaganda, right? So in such formative years, when all Jojo could really use, all he, he really needed was love and affirmation. The strongest offering of love and affirmation comes from the hands of, of Jojo's Fuhrer, of his imaginary friend, Adolf. Now, during a basic training camp for Nazi children, uh, Jojo was given a bunny rabbit, and he was commanded to, 
to kill this bunny rabbit, to break its neck. And Jojo is unable to do so. He just doesn't have the heart to do it. And he receives this nickname, Rabbit, because he lacked this, this killer instinct. Here's a, a scene that, that shows some of the, the outcome of that. Want to tell me about that rabbit's incident? What was all that about? They wanted me to kill it. I'm sorry. I couldn't. Don't worry about it. I couldn't care less. But now they call me a scared rabbit. Let them say whatever they want. People used to say a lot of nasty things about me. Oh, this guy's a lunatic. Oh, look at that psycho. He's going to get us all killed. <laughs> I'll let you know that secret. The rabbit is no coward. The humble little bunny faces a dangerous world every day, hunting carrots for his family, for his country. My empire will be full of all animals. Lions, giraffes, zebras, rhinoceroses, octopuses, rhinoctopuses, <laughs> even the mighty rabbit. Cigarette? Oh, no thanks, I don't smoke. Let me give you some really good advice. Be the rabbit. The humble bunny can outwit all of his enemies. He's brave and sneaky and strong. Be the rabbit. Jojo! Are you alright, Jojo? Who are you talking to? Nobody. So as viewers, um, we feel for Jojo. We feel for him because we suspect that he's actually not that bad of a kid. It's just that he's helpless and he's become enamored with this disordered love of his country. In a way, Jojo is like a caged rabbit. He's imprisoned in ignorance and he's believing that it's possible to love his country while hating his fellow Jewish countrymen and women. After arriving home one day, Jojo goes upstairs to search for his mother, Rosie. And Rosie's not home, but, but while in her room, Jojo finds a secret compartment in the attic and discovers Elsa, a teenage Jewish girl hiding inside. And Jojo screams and goes to tell someone, but she overpowers him. And Elsa tells him, if he tells his mother, she's gonna kill him. And if he tells anyone else, the Gestapo, the police will, will kill his mother for, for hiding her. Meanwhile, Jojo and imaginary Adolf, they brainstorm ideas on how to get rid of Elsa. And Jojo believes that this, this false anti-Jewish propaganda is true. And Jojo thinks of Elsa as like this sort of demonic presence and someone who has evil intentions. And so he strikes a deal with Elsa and, not, and, and he agrees not to tell anyone else about her, but insists on interviewing her to discover more about the Jews. So he can then write a little book and give it to, to his Nazi superiors. And so Elsa makes up stories about what Jews are like just to kind of quell Jojo, just to kind of placate him and keep him quiet. And Jojo becomes angry with his mother in the meantime uh, he becomes angry with her because she's hiding a Jew in their attic. 
And yet he can't tell her because of this deal he's made with Elsa. So he becomes increasingly grumpy, accusing Rosie, his mom, of not loving her country. Meanwhile, stories from the war effort begin to circulate. There are stories of of really imminent defeat, stories of the enclosing allied forces. Here's a clip where um, Rosie and Jojo discuss war and kind of whose side they're on. Why so happy? Things are changing. The Allies have taken Italy, France will be next, and soon the war will be over. Come on, Tavis! Why does that make you happy? You hate your country that much? I love my country. It's a war I hate. It's pointless and stupid, and the sooner we have peace, the better. Oh, the war will end. We will crush our enemies into dust. And when they are destroyed, we shall use the graves as toys. Okay, no more politics. Dinner is neutral grounds. Table is Switzerland. Let's eat. <laughs> you want eating? No, I am not that hungry. I might eat later. For now, I'm just going to chew on these grapes. Well, I'm especially hungry tonight. So maybe I'll just finish yours. Don't want it to go to waste. So throughout the film, there's this um, interplay between between love, exemplified in Rosie, and hate, exemplified, though comedically, in, in Adolf. Jojo, on the other hand, is, he, well, he's not a stock character. He is a, a character in development. There's a lot to him. Jojo is dynamic. Jojo is shown, uh, however painfully, slowly, growing in love and becoming more and more empathetic and compassionate towards Elsa as the film progresses. Uh, In one revealing scene, Jojo sincerely asks Elsa, what is the first thing that you will do when you're free? And Elsa simply replies, dance. I will dance. See, it's a recurring symbol of Jojo's development and growth in his inability. For those who've seen the film, you'll note this. For those of you, which has got to be all of you, who will see the film after this, because I've sold you on it so much, you're going to notice Jojo's always walking around with his shoelaces untied. And mom keeps saying, like, come on, learn how to, and then she ties his shoelaces. This untied and then tied shoelace represents Jojo's growth, his development, that slowly he's beginning to understand that one cannot make their way through this life hating people. That there must be growth. There must be a giving in, a surrender to the undeniable urge, that primal need to love something or someone. In one beautiful scene, Rosie uh, freely declares to Jojo while while waltzing about dancing, she says, we have to dance to show God we're happy to be alive. So here's another clip of Rosie and her patient love for Jojo. 
Someday I'll meet someone special. Why does everyone keep telling me that? Who else tells you that? Everyone? Anyway, it's a stupid idea. You're stupid. Love is the strongest thing in the world. I think you find that metal is the strongest thing in the world, followed closely by dynamite and then muscles. Besides, I wouldn't even know what to wrestle with. Surprise, surprise. The shoelaces are undone again. Oh, Jojo. You know when it happens. You'll feel it. It's a pain. My ass, I bet. In your tummy. Like you're full of butterflies. Yuck. Yeah, yuck. Come on, Shibla. Let's get the move on. What the f Hey! What's wrong with you? I'm worried about you, man. Are you drunk? Again? <laughs> so Jojo continues his interviews with Elsa. And as he speaks with her, his ignorance and his childish prejudice, like a fog, just it begins to lift a little bit. It's obvious that Jojo has begun to feel something akin or, or something like love towards Elsa, even starting to see her as his sister. Meanwhile, Jojo and Adolf, they squabble over her with this imaginary Hitler insisting that Elsa is a monster and and Jojo starts questioning Hitler, starts questioning Adolf. Meanwhile, Jojo spots Rosie leaving free Germany postings around town. And he realizes that she is part of the resistance, part of the underground resistance that is opposing Nazi Germany. In, in one coming of age scene, Elsa confronts Jojo saying this. She says, you're not a Nazi, Jojo. You're a 10-year-old kid who likes dressing up in a funny uniform and wants to be part of a club. Well, we can think of what Elsa says here in light of our identity as those who love, who need to love. Now, we, we often love the wrong things, or we, or we love things in the wrong order or for the wrong reason. Jojo is longing for love, and he finds it in all the wrong places, right? He finds it in racism. He finds it in, in nationalism and chauvinism. Jojo's source of love is not God, as it says in 1 John, but rather a country whose ideological beliefs are exemplified in hate. Exemplified in, in hate of one's Jewish brother and sister. See, Jojo's loves, like that of his country, are seriously misdirected. They're so misdirected that that while those who, who are deemed lovely, Germans, well, they're loved, Jews are hated. Now, turning back to our scripture out of 1 John chapter 4, we note that God has something to say about this. Verse 20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. See, there's a reason why Jesus summed up all the law and all the prophets with the command to love God and to love neighbor. For one, Jesus does this because love covers a multitude of sins. But it's also because one cannot love God and hate their brother and sister. 
right? These, these commands go together. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. These two commands come together, right? They're part of the package. There is a natural, logical kind of love that loves lovely things and lovely people. That's logical. See, Jesus says something similar in Luke chapter six. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. But there is another kind of love. There is another kind of love that that doesn't look for value in what it loves, but that creates value in what it loves. Here's an example, um, a personal example. When Julian, my oldest son, um, when he was about two years old, he was given like a rabbit, a stuffed rabbit. And he loved this rabbit. He's, he quickly became inseparable from it. And he had other toys that in my estimation are way cooler. He still does have cooler toys than this stuffed rabbit, but he is so drawn to this rabbit. He loves this rabbit. Soon the bunny, we noticed, became more and more ragged, right? And more and more dirty. And, and we couldn't wash it because it would just turn up more and more ragged after washing it. And we could not wash it because it would just become more and more dirty. So we're inclined, this is like confession time. We are, we're still inclined to throw this bunny out. It's awful. It's ugly. It's full of, yeah, who knows? But the, so, so, so the sensible thing to do is just to throw this bunny out. But, but anyone who knows Julian would know that that is unthinkable because Julian really loves this bunny. So it's like this. If, if, if I love Julian, I love that bunny, right? Because Julian loves the bunny. I got to love the bunny. So it's part of the same package. Now, let's recall what John says. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. See, God is saying, if you love me, you're going to love my bunnies. You're going to love my people, including the one, by the way, who is looking at themselves in the mirror, including the one who sees themselves in the mirror. See, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the, and the second is like it, Jesus says. See, love doesn't look for value in what it loves. Love creates value in what it loves. See, love doesn't love the lovely. Love loves in order to make them lovely. You ought to know that, that Jesus loved you first. Church, do you know that? That Jesus loved you first. You may not have been very lovable. We tend to think of ourselves as like, yeah, we're not so bad. We've got some things going for us. But yeah, the jury is out on that. I mean, yeah, sure, we, we have a common grace from God that we have natural talents and abilities and I'm sure God delights in our character and who we are. But at the end of the day, we're broken. We're misdirected. We're we're skewed in what we pursue. But when Jesus died for you, he created value in you. You have been bought. You have been paid for by the blood of Jesus 
And no matter how unworthy you feel, Jesus has appraised you. It's like he has found such worth in you that is a mystery to you, perhaps. But he has found you worth dying for. And that is something to praise him for, amen? See, now, we don't have to live for value in this life. That's not what the Christian life is all about. We don't strive for or work towards our own value. That's not what it's about. It's rather about living from value, not for it, but from it. When we live from value, we're able to reflect upon and take stock of the almighty God who wasn't beholden, wasn't forced to love us, but rather was persuaded by some mysterious reason to love us while we were still sinners. See, Jesus claimed you in his love, right? The the word says his banner over you is love. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is, is stirring in us, in our church, a greater understanding of that love And out of a greater understanding of that love, we're going to begin to walk collectively as a group, as individuals as well, in greater esteem and confidence. Because we know that Jesus is not done with us. He has so much more to give. I believe God wants us to be filled ever more by the Spirit, that we would increase in love of God and in love of neighbor, that we would experience a greater fullness of anointing, a greater fullness of equipping for God's good pleasure, for his glory, and for the edification, the the betterment of this, his church. Back to the film. Uh, The German town that Jojo resides in is eventually besieged, and it's, it's taken over by allied forces. Word gets around that Hitler has committed suicide, and, and Germany is defeated. Now, by this time, Jojo and, and, and Elsa, the Jewish girl in the attic, they both emerge from their home as brother and sister. Elsa, for the first time since, since, be, since being hidden away. But right before they leave the house together, Jojo does something interesting. He bends down and he ties the shoelaces of Elsa. Jojo has grown up. He's grown in love, and he has come to understand, as his mother once said, that love is the strongest thing in the world. And upon leaving the house together, Elsa the Jew and Jojo the rabbit, the the Nazi boy, they look at each other kind of quizzically. They look at each other, and then this happens. And we'll close with this.
I'm gonna do now. 